Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Elena Debres. And thank you very much for being with us, Prof H. It's a great honour and wonderful, and I'm looking forward to chatting. It is, we've both warned one another off air that our pussycats may intervene in ways that are not entirely predictable, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it'd be nice if they met each other virtually. They sound like they'd be compatible. <laughs> biters, they're both biters. Ah, yes. So, Prof, the first question I wanted to ask is, if you could share with us what's dynamizing you, troubling you, preoccupying you, interesting you these days. Well, I've just started to get back to a book project that I've had in a drawer for a few years while working on another book. So I'm very excited to get back to that. It's on a relatively narrow subject, the meaning of life. So it's about how humans find meaning in life, um, but told in a memoiristic way through my own history of struggling with that question in relation to my academic discipline philosophy. So it doesn't sound like it's going to be very funny, but it is meant to be a comic intellectual memoir uh, about wrestling with that question. Uh, so I've had that, yeah, I've had a draft of it for a while. I'm very excited to get back and revise that and get it rolling again. So I'm thinking about that all the time. So you do have a pretty solid draft of it. I mean, this is not a draw that's tiny. This is a metaphoric <laughs> draw that's quite sizable. It's a substantial filing cabinet drawer, yeah. Um, so I did a, a full uh, draft of it a few years ago, and now I'm going to do another full draft, and I think it'll be done then. So, yeah, exciting times. Yes, indeed. And you mentioned the word memoir, which has been a part of your work. Could you tell us what a memoir is? That's a great question. Yes, I did. I wrote a book about that sort of to distract me from this other project and then got very excited <laughs> about that. So um, what is memoir? Basically, you know, it's a personal narrative written down, uh, obviously, narrated by the person to whom the life happened. Um, it's different from an autobiography. Uh, at least I use those terms differently. So mm -hmm. it's, not a, it's not a sort of chronological account of someone's life. You know, I was born here. I did this. I did this in a very linear way. Uh, it's usually more um, piecemeal than that. The modern memoir is something that focuses on one theme or part of a life um, and uses that to connect to bigger questions often. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there are many different ways to do it, but contemporary memoirs tend to be more piecemeal um, and to involve a lot of reflection on the inner life and connections to other things outside of the individual too. Well, thank you for being so clear. I mean, I guess this is one of the things that you're required to do as a professional philosopher, provide conceptual clarity. Right? That's one of the terms of trade. Exactly. If you want a definition of anything, I can do it. That's my, my, <laughs> my, that's my so, main TA. That's interesting. So a uh, of <laughs> definitions, personal chair in conceptual clarification. <laughs> Sounds good. Now, in terms of the memoir, you've, as part of engaging with that tradition, you've written about being a twin. Yes, exactly. Um, the, yes, I've just published this book about being a twin. 
Um, and it's the kind of memoir that I like to read. Uh, so it's a mixture of my own personal experience and a bunch of theories. So the book goes into philosophical theory, obviously, because I'm a philosophy professor, but it also touches on uh, a bunch of other different fields, cultural studies, um, literary studies, um, some science, not a whole lot of it, um, film. Uh, so it uses all these different sources to try and help me get clarity on my own experience of being a twin and hopefully illuminate that for other twins and non-twins. Now, this is a stupid question, but what does your twin think of all this? <laughs> oh, I haven't told her. No, <laughs> I haven't told her. No, no, actually, she's been deeply involved in, in the project. She drew illustrations for the book, uh, which is very cool. She's an illustrator on the side of being a professor like me. Twins often have the same job. Um, so she did the illustrations, and she also talked to me a lot about the content. She's a sociolinguist. So her work focuses on discourses about minority groups, and you can see twins as the minority group. Um, not oppressed in the same way that many minorities are, but, you know, a minority in the human population with a unique experience. So she had some really helpful insights sort of ways of framing things that I wouldn't have thought of. How wonderful is, I must, I've, oh, I'm about to burn myself with my obligatory cup of tea that I've just, <laughs> sorry, just one, one moment. You're definitely giving off a very English vibe right now. I know you live in Spain, but this, um, the making of the cup of tea. I like it. I know. It is slightly pathetic. Sorry about that. But the interesting thing in that what I didn't realise until I moved here was that tea is immensely popular in Spain. I had assumed it would be coffee only. But no, there's a big interest in tea, much greater than you get in Latin America, and akin to the way in which tea has come back in the United States can be extremely marginal for decades in the 2000s, tea really burst onto the scene. Anyway, enough of my incredibly interesting ruminations on the thing that almost just burnt one of my fingers. So I haven't read the book, but I have read some of your other things on, on memoir, and I, I hope to get oh, hold of the book at some point. So my apologies for my ignorance about that. But you, you mix these different disciplines, which sounds really fascinating. And I know Dead Ringer's... Mark II is one of the films that you've written about, because I have read that in a, an, an article. Right. But could we start with the philosophical part? Yeah, sure. The philosophy of twins. Right, the philosophy of twins. I mean, it's not, you know, one of the traditional subfields of philosophy. It's not like we've metaphysics, epistemology, and the philosophy of twins. I kind of made this up. Um, but I don't <laughs> really make it up. <laughs> I wanted to write a book. Um, that was kind of idea driven, like an intellectual memoir about twinhood. Uh, and I looked around, read stuff in a bunch of different fields, and, and I found that there really wasn't um, a sustained philosophical examination of that subject. So there's a lot of super interesting stuff written by psychologists and um, theorists in a bunch of different disciplines. Um, but there are these conceptual questions and normative questions about twinhood. But I thought philosophers would be able to add something to that's our, our, our job in a way. Um, so, yeah, the book goes into five different questions. There's five essays, you might say, that make up the book. Um, and each one is on yeah, one particular philosophical aspect of twinhood. Uh, so one is about what twins can tell us about free will. Another is about uh, twinhood and the nature of love. Um, one's on objectification. Twins are often objectified in ways that are broadly similar to the way that women get objectified. Uh, so I think there's some interesting parallels to think about there. 
there's another one on uh, two chapters really on twins and personal identity. So one's on what, what we should say about the the boundaries between twins. Twins are often treated as being in essence or somehow a single person. Can we make sense of that? Is that crazy? Um, and then one one chapter about this habit we have with humans in general, but definitely twins of the binarizing them. One's the good twin, one's the evil twin. Um, should we be, what should we think about that habit? Obviously it's bad in many ways, but there's some good things about it too. So though, that's a broad overview of the types of questions that I get into. Mm. And in the case of you and your sister, you're both evil twins, I'm sure, right? <laughs> it's true. Yeah, that's our little secret. And thank <laughs> you for having us there. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I can remember maybe 50 years ago, it being announced that the controversy over the relative significance of nature versus nurture in the rearing and experience and lives of children had been answered as a consequence of the twins study, right? Right. Be familiar with that people separated at birth who were twins, identical or not, should, if you control for everything else, when their lives are looked at 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, diverge based on those different social experiences or right. be identical based on biologism. What's the answer? <laughs> What's the answer? <laughs> the answer yeah so there are yeah there was a study in minnesota um the minnesota study of twins raised apart that found somehow a bunch of these twins separated at birth um and reunited them um and then did a bunch of different tests on them you know um physical tests intellectual tests personality temperament um and yeah just checked in on how they've been doing over the previous few decades and there was a really really striking result that many of these twins who were identical, genetically identical, um, had had, you know, no shared environment at all, ended up being extraordinarily similar. So there's this famous case, the, the Jim twins. So they both ended up being called Jim. They married a woman called Linda, each of them. They divorced her and married a different woman called Betty. Um, they named their kid, their one son, you know, in each case, James Allen, they named their dog the same thing. They went to the same beach for vacations in Florida. They had the same car. They had the same hobbies. They, their brainwave tests were identical. They're exactly 180 pounds. It was wild. So that was the most striking case. Um, so, yeah, it, it looks like in that case, you can be thrown into some sort of existential crisis about this because it looks like everything about you down to some really, really small facts is determined by your genes. Right. Um, you know, there were some questions raised about the methodology of that study. I'm no behavioral geneticist, but, you know, it's a relatively small sample. Turned out that some of these twins had actually met up before the tests were done, right? So it's possible that they were, you know, they wanted to be more similar, you know, um, and, and kind of rigged the test, maybe, uh, you know, not, not consciously. There's also the fact in the case of those gym twins, you know, even though they weren't raised in the same families, they were still raised in mid-century America as, you know, white men. Um, and so it's not that surprising that they would tend to go for the same names for their children or that they would be dudes who liked, you know, working on woodwork in their man cave. You know, <laughs> so some of these things just seem like the culturally driven um, phenomena that might apply to more people too. Um, so I'm in, in my book, because I'm talking about the philosophy, not the science, I don't try and settle that question directly about the relative influence of nature versus nurture. I was actually more interested in why it is that I and my twin 
and I conjecture many other twins are less interested in that question than you might think, right? So twins are kind of the poster child for this nature-nurture debate. In a particular, <laughs> yeah, right, well, I just, we just don't care. Um, at least I'm generalizing here, but I had this suspicion. I asked other twins that I knew, um, you know, why we care about this in part is we're just interested in the determinants of um, human features. But also I, we have this this concern about free will that seems somehow connected to it, right? Um, that if either nature or nurture is driving our actions or the two in combo, um, then it's not us who's in charge of our destiny, right? So it feels like human freedom is on the line. Um and I, yeah, I, so the essay talks about why maybe I don't really care about that issue very much, even though I should, because I'm a philosophy professor and a philosophy professor is supposed to care about free will, right? <laughs> so I ended up coming to a couple of conclusions about this. So one, I think is just that twins have seen, identical twins in particular have seen the impact of their shared genetic inheritance on their lives from the beginning. And we get kind of used to it, right? We lead, in many cases, perfectly flourishing lives that feel perfectly free, despite the fact that, that we're trapped in this sort of genetic, um, you know, uh, I don't know, deterministic situation. Um, so we're kind of used to it. Um, but I think the other thing, too, is about the nature of the twin relationship. If twins are close, uh, they're, they're less likely than non-twins to be freaked out by the idea that another person is deeply influencing who they are, or rather that the connection they have with another individual explains a lot about them. Um, they're more likely to value that kind of connection and not want to be somehow sort of outside the forces, social and genetic, that form uh, who we are. So I think we just, we sort of get used to it, but also there's there's a reason to get used to it. You don't have to be worried about other people and other forces deeply influencing your sense of self. So that was that's in summary is the the conclusion I came to on that question. Um, yeah. In in many theories of maternity, one of the notions of what counts as the modern is the capacity to individuate, to decontextualize your world, as it were, in order to become someone different. So for someone like yeah. Zimmel, this is the experience of the woman moving to the city from the country in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries in Europe, where she's no longer under the rule of the pastor, the head of the village, the father, the mother, but especially these male patriarchal figures, and can assume a kind of anonymity that would not be possible had she remained in the village, that notion of modernity. So presumably one of the issues for, and this is what some of what philosophers are struggling with with the concept of free will, but sociologists yeah. and historians are more likely to call it individuation or something like that in terms of notions of modernity. Have you got a take on that? Or is that just sort of boring crap compared to real? Oh, no. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, I hadn't read that particular um, um, author, but yes. Um yeah, I, I start the book with a chapter that's called uh, Which One Are You?, um, which is a question that twins will often get. Each of the chapters has a question as a title that twins are often um, faced with growing up. Um, 
because from the very beginning, especially if you look very much like your twin, um, then there's this constant question, what it is that distinguishes you, you know, from from your twin? And so uh, other people are trying to work this out so that they're not constantly getting confused by you. Um, but twins themselves also need to, yeah, to to work out some some sense of self that's distinct from their twin. And every human, you know, the, the whole uh, story, right, of human development is that we're meant to individuate from our uh, parental figures, and in particular, our mother, the first step is, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm me, I'm not her, you know, in the case of the mother, but twins have to do that in relation to their, their twin too, um, because that person is there very closely from the beginning. Um, so yeah, I talk a lot in that chapter about, um, about that habit I talked about before of, of establishing a really stark contrast between twins. I think in some ways it's a panic move, right? It's sort of like, oh God, they're so similar. I'm going to overcorrect and assume that one of them is very, very different from the other. Um, so there's this kind of cartoon contrast that often gets set up early. Um, in my case with my sister and I, it was the introvert versus the extrovert or in, originally like the quiet one versus the, the loud one. Um, so, uh, we, we identify with that super early and it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You start growing into that conception of yourself. Uh, so yeah, I talk in the book about, about whether we should, you know, how we should feel about the fact that not just for twins, but non-twins too, much of our sense of ourself is formed in relation to what seem like overdrawn contrast. So you get it with other siblings too. One's the naughty one, one's the good one and so on. Um, so should we be troubled by the fact that our sense of self seems to have been formed from the beginning by by comparison to someone else in a not very subtle way? Um, yeah, I, I'm more comfortable with it um, than uh, maybe others might be. I'm not sure. I, I, I think we, you know, this is just a general fact about humans. We don't create ourselves again. Um, and there's something quite beautiful, actually, about seeing yourself as the product of um, of relationships with others rather than being super attached to this hyper-individualistic model that we get in the West. Now, I, I want to draw you into a stupid binarism that's incredibly annoying. So apologies for seeking to do that. <laughs> Just go but, there. <laughs> draw for us, if you would, the distinction between an analytic or Anglo-American philosophical view of twindom versus a continental philosophical view of twindom. Oh, gosh, that's um, that is such a good question. No one's asked me that. So that in itself is a problematic binary, right? The analytic mm -hmm. versus the continental distinction. Um, there's something to it for sure, but it's hard to to um, sort of draw it very distinctly. Um, it doesn't make sense, right? So I forget who it was who talked about this, but initially, but it's sort of like saying. I don't know, um, convertible cars versus Japanese cars. It's like, it doesn't make sense. It's like, <laughs> you've, you've got an analytic methodological, um, you know, side in one camp, and then you have a geographical thing in the other. So anyway, it's an unstable contrast. Basically, you know, for readers who aren't familiar with it, the analytic uh, tradition is more the Anglo-American tradition, very focused on, you know, clarity of a particular kind, um, precision, technicality, philosophy gets aligned with math and logic. Um, and uh, the continental tradition uh, is, you know, tends to, it goes back to, to figures in, in France and Germany, mainly European figures, um, and is also much more closely aligned with um, the other humanities, uh, literature and history and, and so forth. So also the continentals dress better, you know, I guess because they're European, right? So they have better outfits. The analytics tend to be kind of more nerdy. Um, so who has so better sex? 
Yeah, I, I mean, one would assume the Continentals. Yeah, I would say so. Um, but then so, they've got to have a cool way of getting out of those nice clothes, right? So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so there's there's that distinction, which is I think become blurred over over mm-hmm. the course of the 21st century. Um, so yeah, I would say okay, I'm just gonna go go out on a limb here, but I would say that if you were taking more of a continental philosophical approach to twinhood you might be much more interested in the symbolism of twins as it connects to doppelgangers in general, right? There's like a long history of, um, in European literature, uh, the Russians too, right, of talking about um, how every person has some sort of shadow self. So you might go kind of Freudian and Jungian on it, right? Um, twins can be seen as a symbol for the twin within each of us, right? So, um, you know, questions about personal identity, but seen in relation to literary figures um, and maybe psychoanalytic tradition. Mm. Uh, I get into a bit of that in, in my book. I am more on the analytic side um, as a matter of training. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested in that and those questions. Um, I feel like the analytic um, study of twins are more likely to go for. I don't, yeah, there's questions about, um, I don't know, uh, boundaries between persons as a sort of question of um, metaphysics um, that I know is going to involve um, a bunch of finite distinctions about what it is to be a person that aren't so literary. I don't know if that's a helpful answer to your question. It's an interesting one. <laughs> no, no, it's a great answer. So I've got one more twin question. Sure. And I want to move on to where you precisely problematize this logocentric interdependence, or not problematize, but give in to this logocentric interdependence and refuse the binarism of continental and Anglo-American, namely your work on justice and on the state or state. Before we go on to that, I wanted to ask you about your essay that probably has a very unusual word in philosophy, namely the word kinder, where you say, where you ask, are twins kinder gay? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah. So one of the, the essays in the book is about, uh, as I said, what twins can tell us about love. So how does this special, uh, unusual human relationship illuminate more generally what uh, what kinds of love are and aren't um, privileged or um, valuable? Um, so, yeah. Um, so the book starts by talking about how there's these two, sorry, the, the chapter starts by talking about how there are these two polarized visions of twinhood that we find in our culture. On the one hand, it's romanticized, um, seen as the ideal relationship. On the other hand, it's pathologized and seen as deeply messed up. You know, um, twins are seen as being overly invested in each other at risk of massive codependence, maybe getting violent and, you know, killing each other, committing double suicide. There's a very weird kind of horror story trope associated with twins. Um, and as I started thinking about that second trope, the pathological version of the twin relationship, it seemed to line up with the, the, the picture that mainstream culture has of queer relationships. So those relationships are also often seen as destined for meltdown. I mean, until recently, many narratives about uh, gay and lesbian couples ended in death. Um, 
for one or both parties. Um, and also the sense that gay couples are somehow immature. They haven't sort of taken up their responsibilities, right? In the broader society, they're less likely to be able to raise children. Um, so, and, and, you know, yeah, tend to be kind of violent and psychologically unwell. Um, so I, I asked my, what, you know, what's the, what, what is this parallel? Is there something to this? Um, and I think there is a parallel. Um, you know, I think that really what's going on here is that twins and queer couples are relationship outlaws. It's an odd way to be in a human relationship. If you're very close with your twin later in life, uh, spend a lot of time with them, maybe live next door to them, co-raise your children, you're stepping outside this, you know, what we think of as the privileged form of adult relationship, which is a sexual romantic union um, between people who aren't related um, that endures over time. Uh, and many queer relationships, you know, they may be sexual and romantic, but they de- depart from that central ideal in other ways. So there's this kind of, there's this unusual parallel there. Um, and I think it, you know, it's also, there's often, um, you know, twins are often seen as, uh, you know, at least somewhat gay. There's often, uh, you know, a sense that twins are, are likely to be romantically interested in each other. You know, there's like a sexual fetish over, you know, having a threesome with a pair of identical female twins, which suggests, you know, it's it's an incestuous uh, vision, even though the focus is on the guy. You've got two uh, two women who are engaged in the sexual encounter with each other. Uh, so, yeah. So anyway, I think it's an interesting question. Um, what causes that and what we can learn from that about what we value in human relationship? Wow. <clears throat> so on to these other essays that I've read, uh, which are to do in part with a couple of interrelated themes, I think. One is what is a state or what are states? And the other ideas related to that of international justice and specifically justice in trade. Yeah. I hope that's a reasonable brief description. Could you tell us about where you would insert yourself into the debates on what are states, what they do, what their responsibilities are and so on? Gosh, yeah, you're going deep into the back catalogue there, Toby. Um, thank you. Sorry, <laughs> this is, this, no, no. I mean, I could I could read some of these out for you if you would like. You know, <laughs> that would I could, be helpful. I could read you the know, introduction and then the, the conclusion, and then you could say, "Ah, oh, yes, I remember what I thought. I think I meant when I wrote that." Maybe. It has been a while. Yeah, I still teach classes on global justice. I did have this big shift. It's now about 10 years ago, actually, from writing uh, writing solely political philosophy and in particular writing on international justice um, towards uh, philosophy of literature, moral philosophy, the, the questions about meaning in life I was talking about, um, and I guess, creative writing. So the, the stuff I've been doing, it's a merger of memoir and, and theory. Mm-hmm. So it's been a while since I've directly worked on those questions. But when I look back on them and think about the connections b- between what I wrote on international justice, I do see a similar kind of, I don't know, intellectual tendency in them. So that's interesting to me. And when I was writing about um, about global justice, I was frustrated by this kind of overly... Um, I think clean and, and plausible binary between um, between thinking about uh, justice solely within the state, so distributed justice as being a matter of uh, solely ensuring that 
you are treated fairly in relation to your um, fellow citizens. And then the idea that we should be thinking about justice, distributive justice as a fully global phenomenon. So the world, the entire world could be seen in essence as one state um, and distributive justice was about trying to make sure that each person in the world was treated fairly in relation to each other person. Um, so a lot of my work was trying to break apart that binary um, and talk about a more pluralistic model of justice where there's a whole bunch of different types of relationships that states and individuals and other agents get into internationally. And maybe we should have different principles of justice for each of those different types of relations. Uh, so I think that's related to what I'm doing in relation to twins, right? Thinking about these kind of overly narrow social conceptual categories that we get stuck in uh, and trying to break those apart, question where they come from and go for a more uh, pluralistic or kind of multifarious picture. Uh, so I've, I've nicely avoided giving you a more substantive account of what I wrote about global justice, but <laughs> that's the autobiographical angle. I think that philosophers like to think that their own temperament um, and, and inclinations are not affecting what they write. But if you look at someone's back catalogue, you can often see threads that go through quite distinct subjects, and I find that interesting. So you say on your webpage that you grew up in at least in part in New Zealand, Aotearoa. Yes. Does that inform any of this stuff about global trade, global justice, differential power, do you think? That's another really good question. Um, I have not thought about that. Um, possibly. I think when you grow up um, down there, yeah, at least uh, I feel like Maybe things have changed now, but when I was growing up in um, Aotearoa in the 1980s, mainly in 90s, it felt like we were very distant from anything that really mattered. <laughs> we were in the middle of the ocean. It felt like all the action was up, um, up in the north. So I do think it gives you a little bit of a sense of a distance from um, from uh, certain tropes about how international relations ought to be organised. You don't feel like you're the main part of the party, and sometimes being on the edge can help you to be more critical or um, think think differently. So that may be true. And I guess also it's an interesting case of a so-called white settler society. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. that sharpens these questions of what should be moral obligations across history and geography. Right. Absolutely. And there's been, you know, I think we've seen this everywhere, but a raising of consciousness about that over the past five years, even. Um, when I was growing up, we just didn't discuss that. We didn't get, you know, we, we would learn about New Zealand's history. It would be very much focused on uh, European New Zealanders and not on um, in, the Indigenous people, Māori. Um, so I was, yeah, I don't feel that I really... Um, yeah, I would hope that New Zealanders who are growing up now have a much more critical perspective than I did. So, Prop, I've got two more questions for you, if I may, and then I'd like to throw it over to you to add anything to the topics we've discussed, maybe the topics themselves or new topics, or subtract anything if you suddenly thought, I didn't mean that. Sure. So my first question is, I'm a Wellesley undergrad. I'm knocking on your door in Philosophy Hall 1274. And I've got to write a capstone thesis. Obviously, I'm inventing all of this. Don't go knocking on that door, anybody <laughs> looking for the prof, because you won't find her 
you'll just find images of me used as a dartboard in my own fantasies. <laughs> it's so a janitor closet, yeah. <laughs> there I am knocking on your door. I've got to do this capstone thesis. And I've got two or three things I'm interested in, but I don't know what to do. I don't know how to go about it. And it's in philosophy. What do you say to me? That's another great question. Um Yes, what do I say? Um, I mean, it, when people are making decisions, you want to know, I guess, what their their goal is. So many students in philosophy have some later plan that they're using their philosophy class to, to get to. So some students very much want to get into graduate school. They have a career that they want to pursue. In those cases, you've got to be a little bit strategic, right? If they're writing a final project, they'll end up being there. Um part of their application to um, some programs. You have to ask them what it is they're interested in and then tailor it that way. That's the boring way to answer it, but sometimes it's relevant. You know, this is the, like, you know, I don't know, cliched and sentimental way to answer it, but this is the way I tend to go. (laughs) Um, I think it's really, really important if you're going to spend a lot of time on a subject that that you really care about it, right? So it may be a subject that is not very well defined that others have not written on maybe that's in a style that um, is not really validated by the academy I'm getting autobiographical again here um, I become frustrated with the way that a lot of academic philosophy is written um, and much more interested in projects that involve like some connection to the students you know personal experience maybe an attempt to reach out to a more general audience so um, that's my shtick um, but I do think that um, yeah that ultimately philosophy was meant to be a about pursuing puzzling questions you're curious about, even if there's no existing literature on them, or even if it's hard to formulate them at the beginning. So I do try and help the students to, to really find what it is that they're excited about um, and follow that, even if it seems like a, a tricky or an untrodden path. I'm making myself sound like some kind of ideal professor now, maybe. <laughs> That's what I well, try to go for. There may be occasions when they can combine those two approaches. Yeah, it's true. Absolutely. That's the that's the ideal case. And the last question, Prof, from me before I hand it over to you, is to ask you about the meaning of life project. I can't help but want (laughs) an adumbration of where it stands and what the big ticket questions are. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, you know, um, many of us are interested in leading a a happy life, right? We want to be happy and not miserable. Uh, That seems pretty universal. Um, But most of us are not just interested in that. We also want to be leading a life that, you know, isn't just sort of superficially enjoyable, um, but has some sort of depth to it, right? Some kind of purpose or point um, that has enduring value, not just passing value, something that makes our lives uh, feel like they make sense. Uh, So that when we're on our deathbed, uh, we're going to look back and feel that it was worthwhile how we lived. So there's that motivation. It's really hard to pin down what exactly that motivation is in relation to happiness different things but it's a distinctively human very widespread desire Um, so I've been thinking a lot about what we should say about that over the past while Um, I think my own take on it is that um, at least one aspect of a meaningful life is seeing your life in terms of a narrative so giving it a certain kind of coherence via narrative unity Um, so that's my kind of intellectual take on the question um, the book that I'm writing is, I, I tend to get a bit meta. So the book is, it's, it's a memoir about the meaning of life. So it's a narrative about meaning in life and in part it's connection to narrative. Um, so <laughs> it's basically looking at different points in my own life 
where some question about meaning came up, uh, bringing in some theory about it, but also just telling the story of my own personal struggle with that question. Um, Mm. So, yeah, again, mixture of uh, memoir and theory, a lot of jokes in it. Um, But, yeah, addressing a serious question I think a lot of people care about and also feel skeptical about. There's been a lot of skepticism about the idea of, of, of whether it's possible to lead a meaningful life. Um, across the course of the the past century or so, um, yeah, I don't know. That's that's it. That's great. So there's some humour in it. I'm not going to do this, but suppose I were a newspaper interviewer for the Guardian, and I asked you to tell us a joke. Would you refuse to do so? You know, I feel like in the moment I might succumb um, and I would tell the joke um, and then maybe I'd feel bad about it afterwards. But yes, (laughs) I like getting a laugh. I'd be sometimes I'm happy to, you know, sacrifice my self-respect to get a laugh. Sure. Well, I, I imagine that works very, very well with your students, because in the seriousness of the topics that you're addressing can be leavened and yet made even more insightful by having some humour, I suspect. Yeah, there's always a danger, you know, you're going to be overly jokey and diminish the yeah. seriousness of the subject. So that's, a you know, a tendency I could occasionally um, display. But I don't think that there's a deep conflict between being humorous and being profound. A lot of the writers that I love to read are very funny um, and the humour is deepening the uh the point it's not some sort of escape valve or release from it it's it's adding something you know the more kind of ironic the humor is the more the more knowing the more it gets at the absurdity of the human condition the more it starts to be you know central rather than just ornamentation or light relief but um, that doesn't mean john rawls is funnier than robert nozick <laughs> no <laughs> there's not a lot of humor in the great classics of uh, analytic <laughs> philosophy although actually nozick was a good um, yeah, a good exception to that. He was often very funny. He was a good storyteller. Okay, yeah. Prof, so handing it over to you now, are there things that we haven't touched on that you'd like us to discuss? Or are there things that we did touch on where you'd like to add or subtract something? Yeah, um, we've covered a very uh, broad array of subjects, so that's cool. Um I guess, I mean, one question I often get asked is about the the Twins Project in particular is, I guess this sounds a bit like a marketing question, but I do get asked it is, you know, what can non-twins learn from twins? Isn't this project really kind of a niche mm. thing that you should be interested in? Yeah. Um, yeah, um, yeah, my, my, you know, my answer to that is, on the one hand, I think twins are fun and often amusing, as we were just uh, saying, amusement is useful way of getting at some really deep human questions. Uh, so if you're interested in metaphysics and um, the philosophy of love um, and ethical questions that apply to humans in general, this is a nice lens into them. Um, but also I think twin singletons could do with some uh, sort of singleton etiquette. Um, so they could do with stepping back and thinking about how they treat twins that they run across. Um, we often get some very weird reactions. Some twins have been mistreated in horrible ways across the course of human history. Don't see that so often now, but twins do get a bunch of kind of problematic attitudes thrown at them. 
Um, so I think if you're interested in um, thinking about, you know, the consequences of your own actions, um, then it's helpful to step back a little bit. Maybe have some some strong reaction to a pair of twins you run into or a narrative about twins you come across, whether it's positive or negative. It can be, uh, I think, enlightening to ask yourself where that attitude is coming from, because sometimes mm-hmm. it can be from a dark place that you might want to investigate. So that's really all I would like to add. <laughs> a little um, public relations announcement from us twins to non-twins. <laughs> Thank you very much, Prof H. It's wonderful to read your work, and I urge anybody who hasn't to do so. And I feel as I've learned even more from talking to you today. Thanks a lot, Toby. It was very fun to chat with you.